from Chile. And when I was 18 years old, I came to the United States. We got married July 7, 2005. Elizabeth, she's from Wisconsin. We came here to Wheaton. After five years, I felt like we didn't have a connection. I asked her if there was someone else. And she said, yes, there is someone else. So Elizabeth left. And I have no family here. During that time, I, I don't think I, I let anyone know about it. I feel embarrassed. So I started thinking, I have to go back to church. I had a, a friend. She was talking about Wheaton Bible Church. In the service of, they had a in Christmas and how beautiful it was. So I started looking at the website and I thought, well, maybe it's a good idea to go, to go there. And I remember that I was smiling but inside I was broken, totally broken. And someone opened the door for me and I went to the service and I started preaching. And it was Isaiah. And at that moment, in that moment, it was like, God and me and everything suddenly it makes sense and there was there was no one else in the auditorium just him and me and I feel peace joy but after that Sunday I start coming here like regularly and the, the person that, that said hello to me, that shake my hand, and I started going to Alpha, and he was uh, the table host, and now we, like, I am part of the Alpha team. And I feel so happy seeing people to come to Christ, see how their, their life changed. My parents were con constantly telling me, you have to go to church. You have to go to church. My mom got invited to a Christian church. And eventually my dad went. So after a couple months, they became Christian. They got baptized and they prayed for me for like 13 years. So the moment I told them that I came to the church, I accept Christ in my life. They were crazy, crazy. It was like, wow, God answered the prayers. It's just, it just amazing. Yeah, what a story. Let's bring up the lights. Um, just an amazing story. You know, we couldn't um, interview and do a video of the angel Gabriel, so we went to the man Gabriel. All right, and he's sitting right here. Gabriel, stand up. That was, thank you for sharing that story, man. 
just wonderful to see what God's done in your life in just a little over a year now. Amazing, amazing story. Now, I I do want you to think about this, and I, I want you to think about what that video is saying, because church isn't a building. It's not a show. It's not a performance. It's not... It's not a program. It's people. So we don't go to church. We are the church. And Jesus was born at Christmas to rescue and to redeem and to transform people. People like Gabriel. People like you and and me. Now, I I realize at this time of year, there are probably some of you uh, that are here that think, you know, Christianity, it's really a a lot of religious hooey. It's make-believe, you know, on the order of Frosty the Snowman. But I want to encourage you uh, to stop and to think. I mean, that's how I used to think. But reflect on Gabriel's testimony. Reflect on what God has done in his life in just a year when somebody invited him to come to church at Christmas. And I also want to remind you that uh, uh, Christianity is not only an ancient religion, but it's the only religion, only religion that makes its validity totally dependent on historical facts. And the historical case for the birth of Jesus Christ is so wonderfully strong that it's really beyond dispute. Jesus Christ really was born not quite 2,000 years ago. And Jesus Christ really is every bit as real as the person you're sitting next to, the people around you. And today, what I want to do is talk about peace. Peace calculus. The peace Jesus brings. The peace Gabriel mentioned in the video. The peace that the angels announced to the shepherds on this hill outside of Bethlehem. And I want to do this by going at uh, what is the most famous of all, the the many well-known Christmas prophecies in the Old Testament. And that is Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. So if you have a Bible, turn on your Bible, turn in your Bible, grab a Bible in front of you. It's page 683 in those Bibles. And we're going to look at this prophecy that was given, that was made 700 years before Jesus was born. Seven centuries. And in this prophecy... As we've seen over the last couple of weeks, there are four titles, four descriptive titles, two words each, of Jesus. All pointing to prophesying the Messiah's deity. 
And this is now the fourth week of Advent. We have lit now the fourth candle. And as, as Brian mentioned, today what we're going to do is focus on the fourth title, the Prince of Peace. The, the last three words of Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. So let's read Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called, and now we begin to see that this is no ordinary man. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, God gave us the Old Testament book of Isaiah, this book full of prophecies that we might live God-centered lives. And God gave us this specific, what we call messianic prophecy, this prophecy about Jesus, that we might live Jesus-centered lives, that we might understand how awesome Jesus Christ really is. Now today, as we zero in on this one title, these three words, Prince of Peace, I want to do three things. I want to look at the problem this title assumes. Then I want to look at the solution this title offers. Then I want to look at the response this title demands. So we're going to look at problem, we're going to look at solution, we're going to look at response. And let's begin with the problem. The problem the title Prince of Peace assumes is that we live in a world that is peace-starved, peace-challenged. Peace poor. We all have a peace deficit in our hearts. And even though this prophecy was given 2,700 years ago and dramatically fulfilled in part in the first coming of Jesus when Jesus was born at Christmas, we're still, 2,700 years later, not listening. We're still, 2,700 years later, peace-challenged. So tyranny and terrorism, war and corruption, injustice, abuse, poverty, starvation, disease and death is the daily experience of millions and millions of people all around the world. There is no peace in Syria today. There is no peace in Sudan right now. Did you read today about what's going on in Sudan? Uh, there's no peace functionally in Iraq. And most of us, if we travel this Christmas, we're not going to be vacationing in Iran or North Korea or Afghanistan or Nigeria. And I could go on and on. And you and I will eat, we'll probably eat more over Christmas than millions of people on this planet will eat over the next several months. We are the most sophisticated, we are the most highly developed 
at the most highly developed point in human history. But we are just as peace-challenged, we are just as peace-starved as we were the day Isaiah penned these words. And, and if we're going to understand uh, the, the issues, the glorious issues surrounding Prince of Peace, we've got to come to terms with our peace deficit. And think about it closer to home. I mean, here in the United States. Uh, in spite of all our affluence, all our comforts, all our technological sophistication, all our, our advantages, man, if the walls of our bedrooms, if the walls of our family rooms, our kitchens, our offices uh, could speak, they would reveal untold stress, anxiety, fear, conflict, hurt, hate, abuse, anger, and on and on. We may not be at war here in the United States like Syria, for example, is at war, but I want to suggest to you we are just as peace-challenged in different ways. Sometimes it's the big things, it's the horrible things, the life-changing things that we never saw coming that just come up and clobber us. But sometimes it's just the, the little things, actually hundreds of little things that suck the peace and, and the joy uh, right out from us. That was my week this last week. I had a peace deficit week. I was peace challenged. Now, I told you last Sunday what I did, right? I told you that I forgot our anniversary, sixth anniversary, and scheduled a colonoscopy instead. And we all laughed about that, and I admitted that I'm the world's biggest moron. But it only got worse. I mean, not with Rhonda and me. Rhonda was fine, and she laughed about it, and she said, yeah, I knew what I was getting into. Uh, the next day I went to the doctor and found out I've got to have another eye surgery in January. It's like, it'll be my fourth eye surgery. It's like, come on. But that wasn't even that big a deal because that surgery is not going to be um, like the, the previous surgery. So it was a really big deal as we just had one car problem after another. And, and, and car problems vandalize my peace. You have your issues, I have mine. Tech problems, car problems really get under my skin. And my car, kept, the tire kept going down, and I'd pump it up, and then it'd be okay for a day. And, and, and finally, you know, we had to take it in, got it fixed, not a big deal. But um, we, we had another car. Actually, it was my son's car, and I was getting it ready for him, when, coming home from college and making sure it was working. And um, I never want to trivialize demon possession because demon possession is a real phenomenon. You know where I'm going. I think this little red Hyundai was demon-possessed. <laughs> because you go, I would open the door, um, and uh, the alarm would go off. And the alarm would just keep going and going and going and going. And I'd get in and say, okay, i got to turn the car on. Well, the alarm system set off the ignition, so the alarm was going, but the car wasn't. And finally, at one point, it was like 9.30 at night when this first happened. I just walked in the house and let the alarm go. And thought, you know, the neighbors are thinking, we love Pastor Rob. It's so great having a pastor in our neighborhood. 
This alarm's just going and going and going. So the night we picked up, um, I don't know if it was Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night this week, the night we picked up my car from the tire place after my tire had gotten fixed, Rhonda, my wife, was actually driving Ryan's car because Ryan's car was unreliable and he had to take her car to work. So Rhonda says, hey, um, okay, the, the car's running, and it was an intermittent problem in this um, arguably demon-possessed car. And you know what I intermittent means? <laughs> means no peace. <laughs> no peace. I'm talking about peace today. So the car's working, Rhonda drives it, and she says, I'm going to the grocery store. So Rhonda goes to Jewel, and I go home. And then about 45 minutes later, 9 o'clock at night, it's snowing, it's really cold, I get this call from Rhonda. She doesn't have to say anything. I hear the alarm going off. <laughs> She's stuck in the parking lot of Jewel. She's got all her groceries in the car. The alarm's going off. She's freezing, and the car won't start. So I call a friend who's a former mechanic, and he says, hey, you know, Rob, what I've done in situations like this is you just got to kind of hit that alarm. It's on the, the top of, uh, of your engine, and maybe that'll free up the wire, and it'll tell the computer what to do, and then the ignition will kick in. So I go over, I, you know, this night, snowing out, parking lot of Jewel. I lift up the hood, and there I am beating on the car. And people are driving by, it's a parking lot of Jewel, and say, no, there's Pastor Rob beating on his car. <laughs> Doesn't look like he has a whole lot of peace. <laughs> For me, it's car problems, computer problems. What is it for you? You see, it's not necessarily just the big things. It's often the little things. And this goes all the way back to the fall. Look at how Tim Keller, a New York City pastor, puts it when he says this. Let's get these words up here. When we lost our relationship with God in the Garden of Eden, the whole world stopped working right. The world is filled with hunger, sickness, aging, and physical death. Because our relationship with God is broken down, shalom is gone, spiritually, psychologically, socially, and physically. Shalom is the Hebrew word for peace, and it's gone. Peace starved. Now I'm going to come back and I'm going to talk about shalom, but I want you to notice that what he is saying is peace is gone. Every dimension, every aspect of our lives. And I got to tell you, Pastor Tim Keller is right. Because for most of us adults, and let me just speak to you adults, uh, peace tends to come in short-lived fragments. The kind of stuff we post on Facebook. You know, the vacation was great, and it was warm. And all of you are idiots for living in the cold in Chicago. You know, that, that kind of stuff we see on Facebook. Or, or the restaurant was really good, and, and here's a picture. Or my job is really good right now. This just happened, it's good. Or, or my family is healthy right now. The family is healthy today. But our peace here in the United States is not the deep-seated sense of well-being and fulfillment and completeness that transcends any and every circumstance that we all long for. It's not our experience. You're peace challenged, I'm peace challenged. 
or peace poor. Every area of our lives. And that's the problem. And if we're going to appreciate what the Prince of Peace means and the solution, we've got to understand this problem. We have to understand why God sent his son. So let's move now from the problem to the solution. That's a problem. What is the solution? Well, the solution is the Prince of Peace. The last three words of verse 6. The solution is Jesus. And so when we come to Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, and this beautiful title, Prince of Peace, there's a couple things I want you to understand it means uh, as we think about uh, solving this problem. First of all, it means that peace is not a program, it's a person. Peace is not the right circumstances, the right car. It's the right relationship. Peace is not a government activity, it's a divine activity. Uh, uh, peace is not a human initiative it's a heavenly initiative we are peace starved because we are sinful fallen people and we live in a sinful fallen world and that's what the headlines and the news tell us every single day whether we want to believe it or not and therefore into the world God sent his son Jesus Christ who was born at Christmas the Christmas miracle and yet we are chronically peace impoverished because we ignore Jesus. And we look for peace here, this widget there, this situation, this episode, this piece of success. If not for us, then for our kids. And the Bible says peace is a person. A person. Second thing we've got to understand is yes, this message uh, talks about the mystery of the person of Jesus Christ. And, and we see in this, as I said last week, uh, elements of Jesus' uh, humanity and, and certainly Jesus' deity. But what I want you to understand, our title, Prince of Peace, focuses on and emphasizes Jesus' deity. That's why he's called Prince, Heavenly Prince, Divine Prince, Universal Prince, Cosmic Prince. Jesus is fully God. Jesus born at Christmas, not your ordinary baby. Not. Third, this reign of peace that is described in our passage will be forever. It will be eternal. Isaiah says, there will never be an end. Try to wrap your mind around that. Never be an end. And, and then fourth, uh, Isaiah describes the impact of, of Christ's reign here on civilization and he uses uh, terms like worldwide justice and, and righteousness and flourishing. But the emphasis, what Isaiah emphasizes here is peace. And the Hebrew word is the word shalom. And shalom is this beautiful concept that doesn't merely mean the absence of war, the absence of conflict. It means worldwide wholeness, completeness, order, blessing, fulfillment, and, and delight. 
where every need is met, every tear is wiped away, every heart is full and overflowing, and every gift, every, every ability that, 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 that God has blessed us with is fully and, and continually used for the glory of God and the benefit of his kingdom, and every single child is safe and secure. And Isaiah is saying in Isaiah chapter 9 in verses 6 and 7 that a day is coming when chaos and darkness and deceit and war will be no more. That day is coming when there will be a pervasive wonder and worship and, and joy in the presence of God and His Son, uh, Jesus Christ. And just maybe, I may be reading a little into this, the suggestion is that the Cubs will finally win the World Series. Bears Super Bowl, I don't know, you can go on. And the Bible elsewhere tells us all of this is going to happen at the second coming of Jesus Christ, which will usher in the millennial reign of Christ, which will usher in uh, eternity future. But I want you to see how Isaiah describes this, how he unpacks what he's getting at in verse 7. So let's go to Isaiah chapter 54. And let's look at here in Isaiah 54, the picture Isaiah paints of what the world will be like when Jesus returns again. Isaiah chapter 54, let's pick it up in verse 7. Now God is speaking, and God is speaking to Israel, and God is announcing that there is a day coming when all the promises he has made to Israel will be literally fulfilled. Verse 7, for a brief moment I abandon you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger I hid my face. Israel went into exile, and remission is a nation from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. To me this is like the days of Noah when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken, the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant, and here's our word, my covenant of peace. Now that's a reference to the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants that are explained and promises made to Israel earlier in the Old Testament. Nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. O afflicted city, now he zeroes in on Jerusalem. Uh, lashed by storms and not comforted, I will build you with stones of turquoise, your foundations with sapphires. I will make your battlements rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and all your walls of precious stones. All your sons will be taught by the Lord, and great will be your children's peace, which is what every parent wants for their children. Peace. In righteousness you will be established, tyranny will be far from you, you will have nothing to fear, terror will be far removed, and it will not come near you. Now this is described in greater detail at the end of the New Testament in Revelation chapter 20, 21, and, and 22. Isaiah describes it elsewhere. But what I want you to know is these promises to Israel will be literally fulfilled. And just as Jesus Christ came the first time, he is coming again a second time. 
And Isaiah's point in Isaiah chapter 9 and verses 6 and 7 is that Jesus, the Prince of Peace, was born to bring his peace, this Isaiah 54 peace. Now the question is how? I mean, how in the world is that going to happen? And frankly, this is the question that the Bible consumes itself with. This is the question the Bible wrestles with from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. And it's this question, how will God reconcile his love and his holiness ultimately? In other words, how, how can a, a loving God whose disposition is to forgive sin, who is also at the same time a holy God who must satisfy the demands of his justice and punish sin, going to work this out with the planet. So in light of our theme, how is our sin going to give way so that peace will be our experience at the second coming of Christ? And the answer is the first coming of Christ. So I want you to turn back a previous chapter. And let's go from Isaiah 54 to Isaiah 53. We looked at this last week, and I want to return again to verse 5 because our word is found in verse 5. So we read this Old Testament prophecy about the crucifixion of Christ, the death of Christ, and Isaiah foretells, but he was pierced, for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us, there it is, peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Healed in the sense of forgiven. Now, as I said, this is a prophecy so sure it's stated in the past tense, predicting the coming death of the Messiah, the, the, the death of the Son of God. And so what this tells us is that Jesus was crucified not because he outraged the Jews and the Romans, but because God was outraged with our sin. So the peace plan of God that Isaiah here prophesies is the death of God. The peace plan of God is the death of the Son of God. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. God put his son to death on the cross in our place for our sins as a substitute for our sins. Our transgressions and our iniquities are the words Isaiah uses. And his punishment, the punishment that fell on God, the, or on, on Jesus, because of the holiness and the justice and the righteousness of God, brings us peace. Peace with God, the peace of God. So Isaiah 53 means that the Prince of Peace became the suffering servant who bore our sorrows and our griefs. And the biblical answer to this divine dilemma of how does a loving God reconcile with the holiness of God when it comes to sinful, fallen people is that the Prince of Peace who offers universal peace, the promise of the second coming, and the suffering servant who paid the ultimate price for peace are one and the same. And Jesus Christ, born at Christmas, is not your ordinary baby. 
And that's a matter of history. And so from the standpoint of the New Testament after the fact, look at how the New Testament describes it and how it emphasizes this gift of peace. Let's see this. Colossians chapter 1. Paul writes, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that is in Jesus, and through him, that is in Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth, things in heaven, by making, there it is, peace. Through Isaiah 53. Through his blood shed on the cross. So please, please, this Christmas 2013, uh, hear me. If you get this, it changes everything. Peace isn't the right circumstances. It isn't the right job. It isn't the right car. It isn't the right house. It isn't the right boyfriend. It isn't ultimately the, the right girlfriend. It isn't a perfect marriage. It isn't perfect kids. It isn't a perfect dog. You can have my dog. My dog chews my books and Bibles. Peace is a person, the, the prince of peace who was born at Christmas to die for our sins. Through his blood shed on the cross, Paul says. Now the question is, how do we respond to this? This prophecy given 2,700 years ago, Christ who was born 2,000 years ago, uh, what does this mean for us here in the U.S.? hundreds and hundreds of centuries years later. And, and what does it mean specifically for those of us that claim to be Christians, claim to know Christ, uh, but who just like me, man, are peace challenged. And, and you have weeks where there ain't a lot of peace. Uh, uh, how, do we, uh, how do we get to where God wants us to be on this? And I want to look at another passage in Isaiah. I'm going to conclude with this. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 26, and I want you to see, see three things relative to the experience of peace. Isaiah 26. And the first thing I want you to see is that sustaining peace, I mean functional day in and day out peace, is a faith thing. A belief thing. So look at Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord is the rock eternal. Uh, amazing here. I want you to see the progression, but in our verse, it's actually stated in the reverse. So let me start at the bottom and move backwards. What the passage is saying is when you trust God, that is you functionally take God as his word, you believe him and you choose to obey him and you keep God and his son Jesus Christ at the center of your lives, then what happens is, second, your mind becomes steadfast. Because you're convinced of the love of God. You're convinced of the unchanging sovereignty of God in good times and bad times. And then what happens as a result of that? Three is you experience perfect peace. So don't miss the progression. It's stated in the reverse though. Trust leads to steadfastness and steadfastness leads to peace. Here described as perfect peace. In other words, it's a faith thing. And biblically, faith is an understanding because there's going to always be all sorts of things in your life that you can't understand. God, why in the world did you do that? 
Or why didn't you come through here? Uh, So biblically, faith is not understanding, it's dependence. And that's the beauty of these two verses. Second, sustaining peace, according to Isaiah 26, is a love thing, it's a heart thing, it's a passion thing, it's a love for Jesus. It's a passion for Jesus. Look at verses 8 and 9. Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and your renown are the desire of our hearts. My soul yearns for you in the night. In the morning, my spirit longs for you. This is all heart language, language of the heart. Now here we move from the mind to the heart. Uh, So we believe in Jesus, but we love Jesus from the heart. His name, his renown, his glory are our desires. So we aren't just going through the emotions. We aren't just showing up at church at Christmas and Easter or occasionally when it's convenient. We aren't occasional Christians. Man, it's a heart thing. So we pray. We, we read God's Word. We study God's Word with other people because we love Jesus from the heart. And if we're too busy for that, the truth is there's not a lot of peace. And ultimately, our, our problem with stress Greed, picket, pornography, alcohol abuse, anger, control. Ultimately, our our marriage problems, our our relational problems are are rooted in a deep-seated undervaluing of Jesus and his grace. That's a heart thing. And it's only when Jesus is king in our lives and is given his proper value, his proper place in in our hearts that king money or king lust or king whatever the idol is, alcohol or or drugs or anger or control will no longer have power over you. And you'll be a person of peace. You see, when your happiness is tethered to your circumstances or to a particular idol that you have chosen, and that's at the center of your life, and Jesus gets pushed out to the edges. Jesus, who is your creator and your redeemer, gets pushed out to the edges, then what happens is you will automatically, not even consciously, Look for something in creation to satisfy the deepest longings of your heart and to give you peace. And it won't work. Because creation was never designed to fulfill the deepest longings of your heart. And it makes this promise that we mistakenly believe And creation can't deliver on that promise because the creator is the only one that can fill our hearts. So peace is not just a faith thing, it's a heart thing. Third, sustaining peace is a grace thing. Look at verse 12, beautiful verse. 
Lord, you establish peace for us. All that we have accomplished, you have done for us. Now notice the connection between peace and the humble awareness of God's grace in your life. So your lack of faith in God, uh, your lack of love for God from the heart, and here in verse 12, your lack of humility before God, your pride are what vandalize peace. It's all here in Isaiah 26. And pride causes you to set yourself up as king of your life, king of your world, and, and it deceives you into thinking your life is all about you, and man, you think that's really cool, and the people around you run for cover. But the spiritual life isn't about you. The spiritual life isn't about your preferences. The spiritual life isn't about what you need to do. It isn't about your performance. Uh, it isn't about your intelligence. It isn't about your gift mix. It isn't about your success. It's about Christ's performance and what he has done for us. And it's called grace. All that we have accomplished, you have done for us. So the spiritual life is never about you proving your worth. It's about resting in Christ's worth through his work on the cross in your behalf. And I got to tell you, man, I, I love what Isaiah 26 has to say about how I actuate in my life, activate in my life, what it means to live in light of the Prince of Peace. Because according to this chapter, man, peace is a function of daily, daily trusting in Jesus, daily, daily loving Jesus, and daily resting in the grace of God in Jesus Christ. But just maybe you're here this morning and you're like Gabriel was a year ago, a little over a year ago. You're on the outside looking in. And you know you haven't come to Christ. And maybe you're fearful. Maybe you've been running from God. It could be hundreds of different things. And I just want to say to you the good news of Christmas, the good news of the gospel, is that God sent his son, the Prince of Peace, to die for your sin that you might be reconciled to him and experience reconciliation in every other area of your life. God has given us Jesus to grant us divine amnesty. And when it comes to peace, there are no other alternatives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christmas, for the Christ of Christmas, for the incredible grace you offer us. And give us the grace to turn to Jesus, to honor Jesus, that his glory his name, his renown would be the desire of our hearts. God, give us the experience of Isaiah 26.
In Jesus' name, amen. Now, would you stand with me for our benediction? I want to read from the book of Numbers, a benediction in the book of Numbers, because it uses our word. Before I read it, I want to remind you, as, as Ted said, we have three Christmas Eve services, three, five o'clock, three o'clock, five o'clock, and seven o'clock. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace, peace, a divine invitation. Thank you for worshiping with us today. Our prayer team will be down in front. You have a merry, blessed Christmas.